Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. And we'd like to welcome everybody back to the Footballs Family Podcast. And I've got a special guest. And I'm really looking forward to this uh, particular interview because the guy that he's talking about, the way I see it, is larger than life in a lot of ways. So uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, I'm Mike Richmond, author of uh, the new newly published biography, George Allen, A Football Life. And this is actually the fourth book I've written. I wrote The Redskins Encyclopedia. In 2007, the Washington Redskins Football Vault in 2010. Joe Gibbs, An Enduring Legacy in 2015. And so this is my newest literary endeavor, George Allen, A Football Life. Well, we will, if I could figure out how to do it, we'll put all those in the show notes so people you know, could click on it and get it. If you would send me that information, I probably could find it. But anyway, <clears throat> what I want to do, Mr. Mike, is I have grown up we didn't have football here in Tennessee. Uh, we had the Tennessee Vols, and I was not a fan. We didn't get pro football until 1997, 98 in that time frame. So I was able to experience different types of teams over the years. And the Redskins, and he's wearing the Redskin hat right now, the burgundy, yellow, and red. Is that correct? Burgundy and gold. Bur- burgundy and gold. Burgundy, red, and gold. Okay, that's right. That's right. Um. I got to experience a little bit of the Redskins. I was talking to Mr. Mike just a second ago that I did not have a good express, a good feeling about them when they beat my Broncos in, in Super Bowl. Uh, but I started respecting them because their team had a long history. And George Allen is part of that. Would you like to explain a little bit of who he, who he was and how the Redskins played a part in that? Sure. Uh, well, to touch on, on your point about the, uh, the glory years of the Redskins, George Allen – Although he preceded Joe Gibbs, he actually started that that whole Redskins fanaticism in the in the early seventies. He came to DC in nineteen seventy one. So the first true Redskins fanaticism, you could say, in the modern era, started with George Allen in nineteen seventy one. The Redskins went to the playoffs for the first time in a quarter century. They finished nine four and one that season, lost in the first round of the playoffs. But the following year, he took them to Super Bowl seven. They lost to the Dolphins 14 7 in Super Bowl 7, and that's the Dolphins team that finished undefeated. Okay. I did not realize that he was the coach there. And we know yes. Don Shula, but I didn't realize that, that he was the coach there. Thank you. That's that's new. Yeah, George Allen was, was the coach of that Redskins team. Absolutely. So oh. that that started the whole euphoria in the DC area to, toward the Redskins. They were a good team offensively in the 60s with Sonny Jurgensen and Charlie Taylor and Bobby Mitchell and Jerry Smith, and those guys are very exciting offensively, but they had very little defense. So they were mediocre at best and record wise. But when, when Allen came here in 1971, he just turned the whole franchise around and they became a perennial contender under how, George Allen. How did he do that? If you, if you tell me that he had the Sonny Jurgensen era, by the way, I love his build. That guy is built like everybody. <laughs> he's, he's just a good old boy. Uh, but how in the world did a guy turn an offensive team into a well-rounded team what did he do he acquired a lot of veteran players on the defensive side of the ball 
who who still had quite a bit of mileage left in them, and they were really good players, such as uh, Jack Pardee oh, from yeah. the Rams, Dyron Talbert from the Rams. Uh, he got uh, Ron McDowell, great defensive player for the Buffalo Bills from the AFL in the mid-60s. McDowell was still around. Um, he he had a lot to give as a player. So he really fortified the defensive side of the ball. The Redskins became one of the best defensive teams in the league in 1971. Uh, I think they, they led the league in, in uh, uh, turnovers forced or, or interceptions that year. So they were, they were, and that's actually one thing that Allen preached was ball hawking. So they became a really good team on the defensive side of the ball, which complemented all the talent they had on offense. Now, I also need to point out that they lost Sonny Jurgensen in the preseason that year. He had a shoulder injury in an exhibition game against the Dolphins. So Billy Kilmer, Allen's first acquisition when he arrived in January of 1971, he took over the starting role of quarterback first game of the season, 1971, and played most of the 1971 season. So, but that's, that's how, that's basically, that was, that was that turnaround. He, he strengthened the defense. He acquired a lot of those veteran players, very savvy on, on defense. They were sort of like extensions of Allen on the field. And that's what he wanted. He wanted all these, these uh, field generals and lieutenants to, to do what, what Allen envisioned they should be doing on defense. Now, did, way off the subject for a second. Did you ever get a chance to meet George Allen? I did not. I never met him personally. Okay. Uh, yeah. He, he uh, go ahead. I knew of his teams, though, but I, I will say one player I did meet, and this was a treat, uh, following the 1971 season, uh, my father had, and my father owned a men's clothing store in Rockville, Maryland. So he wanted to do a promo with a Redskins player. There was a Redskins player who was a regular customer of his, Brig Owens, Redskins Safety. So my father said, Can you find a Redskins player? that would be interested in coming and signing autographs and, and posing for pictures with, uh, with customers and fans, whatever. So Charlie Haraway, Redskins, really good Redskins fullback who actually had uh, played well previously with the Cleveland Browns until he was acquired by the Redskins. He, he appeared at my father's store that day. So, I mean, I was just in heaven that day. I, but I lived vicariously through those players. I knew all, all the names, all the numbers, and I would, Imitate the throwing motion of uh, Sonny Jurgensen and Billy Kilmer. We get lost in the schoolyard, play ball all day, and you know, I did I did that that crazy stuff. So, uh, but that I never personally met uh, George Allen. Now, now you said well, I came way off the subject. This is what I love about history and and people's experiences. This is this is fascinating. You said you were in Maryland. Um, why not a Colts fan? Uh, uh, Baltimore was a. Uh, that's really another world. I mean, we're much closer to Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Potomac, Maryland, where I grew up in Montgomery County, it's a D.C. suburb. I actually did like those Colts teams uh, in the late 60s and in 1970. They won the Super Bowl. I followed them and, and there was a liking for them. But then when the Redskins became really good under George Allen starting in 1971, you know, I, I switched my my allegiance entirely to the to that Redskins team. And uh, although I did follow the Colts, I mean they were a great team, and Johnny Unitas was in his latter years, but but he was he was still playing well, and he actually played in that Super Bowl five. Um, so, but yeah, it, it, those are some really great Colts teams. But I was a Baltimore Orioles fan actually. I didn't I didn't really care for the Washington Senators too much. They were so bad as a team, the baseball team. Yeah. But I became an Orioles fan, and um, uh, and I I remember things like, and this is you know kind of 
my ability to retain information. In 1970, they had 420 game winners. So it's one thing I remember about that Orioles team. But they they had some really great teams. You so you watched now how long was uh George Allen the coach there in uh DC? He uh, coached for seven seasons, 1971 through 1977. And then Joe Gibbs took over after that. Uh, no, actually, Jack Party. Jack Party. He succeeded Allen. He coached for three years, 78, 79, and 80. And then Party was fired. And then Gibbs was hired starting with an 81 season. So you have followed the, the Redskins football team commanders. That hurt seeing those last two. Really, more, more, more than a half century. I mean, tr- truth really in, in earnest, more than a half century. You could say starting with 1971, fast forward to today. I mean, it's more than a half century. So, you know, I've been following that team for more than 50 years, really. I remember a few things from the 60s, but but not a whole lot. I mean, I went to a game here or there. My father would take me. But uh, I was 10 years old when Alan came here in 1971. And, um, yeah, I just – that was my team. I mean, I remember in the 71 season on Sundays, I was taking the horseback riding lessons with my sister and and that the Redskins at the same time were, were winning. And so when the lessons was over, were over, I had to get home and find out how they did. I mean, I, I was just so <laughs> attached to that team. Did that growing up in that area, was that something that a lot of people went to or were, did you have divided loyalty between the Colts and, and the Redskins or was it just basically Redskins? Oh, it was, it was, at, that, at that point, it was entirely Redskins. There was no divided loyalty at that point. I mean, I was like, I would bleed burgundy and gold, basically. So starting, is this, go ahead, go ahead. You no, know, starting when Alan came here in 1971. And I've just carried that that love for the Redskins slash commanders forward to this day. Is that why you pick, because you can't just fall into a book. Is that why you picked George Allen to do this book over? Well, at the same time that I gained a love for the Redskins, uh, I was uh, coming to, to really love history. I mean, my mother took me to every museum or almost every museum in the D.C. area. So I gained a love for history. And in a grade school, in, uh, in sixth grade, I, I, I had this interest in, in writing about sports. I remember there was a writing project that I did in sixth grade. It was a bound little project. And it's called the amateur who played like a pro. It was about this great player at Ohio State who later played in the Rose Bowl at US against USC, which was a big deal back in those days. Ohio State or Michigan usually played like USC or UCLA. So, but that that was a big deal. So I wrote I wrote this bound uh, book, and so I had it in my mind at that time that that's something I wanted to pursue later in life, and uh, and also just um, at a high school reunion one year. I remember one of my, my one of my classmates uh, approached me and said, "You know, I remember when you were in grade school, Mike. You used to imitate Howard Cosell. So when you when you combine all of those interests and you know personality quirks and and so forth, I mean, and, and, and you know, put every piece of the puzzle together. That's how I became who I have become today. You you have a fandom that." This show, this show is about people like you. I love hearing stories about people like you, not only books, but what you have expressed about your fandom is, is fascinating to me because you've had to endure, well, like, I can't relate in a way the Titans have been good until they're not. 
but you you endured you had the highest of highs for the 80s and the 90s pretty pretty good pretty good years yes. and then you went through not so good years and i'm going through my head of coaches that you probably would not be happy if i go through my head and mention them and right now you went through golly 30 years or 20 some odd years of one of the worst owners in sports history right i mean it's been tough being a a fan of the franchise uh in recent decades uh really since since Gibbs left for the first time after the 92 season, they have not been a consistent contender. I mean, they've had a, a good season here and there, but uh, you know, they, they haven't been that type of team. Like, you know, you, you can't compare them in any way to the Philadelphia Eagles, for instance, an NFC East rival. And it's really, really tough watching them being so dominant week after week. I mean, the Redskins, the, the franchise commanders, whatever, they're just not like that. I mean, I, I remember, uh, just thinking after a game against uh, they've lost the Eagles twice this season, both have been relatively close games and just the comparison between the two teams, the Eagles outlasted them down the stretch. Eagles won one game in, in overtime and, and outlasted them in the fourth quarter of the other game. The Eagles had so much more firepower though, that the commanders didn't have. And that's basically been the story over the years. The, the commanders have had some good players but they haven't had enough good players to be that that perennial contender in the NFL. So it's been it's been tough following them in recent decades. I can see that. Uh, by the way, I'm loving your quarterback now, and I noticed that he. If maybe I needed to double check this, but I said something told me today that he is the leader in yards. Sam Howell. Who would have I thought that? That's correct. I believe is he's the leader in either the NFC or the NFL in total passing uh, yards. Yeah, I didn't see which one it was, but it's one of And the- I think he's up there in, in, in touchdown passes too. He may he may be second in the league in, in total touchdown passes. So, I mean, he's been prolific thus far in terms of his passing, but but that's another example of, you know, having a a really really good player in Sam Howell, but he needs he needs bodies around him that can consist consistently support what he's doing. I mean, they have some good talent here and there, but they don't have all of the pieces that they need. And that's basically been the story about that franchise in recent decades. So, so let's let's tie in, and I'm going to test you right here. You ready? You ready? Uh, every if, if anybody knows George George Allen, like, refresh my memory. He was the coach at, for the Rams before he became the coach of the Redskins, right? That's correct. Okay. Okay. When you said he brought people over from the Rams, I knew that there was a connection, but I don't. I didn't remember where it was. Um, he had and the most famous thing that he had was the over the hill game. And I was watching something today, the old NFL films that said that he had uh, something about he wanted his players to be reflective on their heads, like me. That's coming from two daughters, by the way. That's why I have that. He wanted the he wanted the bald heads, the, he the gray the beards, head. and the bald heads. And and he got him, and they did an amazing job. And I think he gave up draft picks in order to get them because he viewed the experience better than the draft picks. Now, jump ahead about 20-some-odd years, and your previous owner, which we won't mention his name, believed in getting people who were over the hill and then some, like a Bruce Smith, like a Deion Sanders, Um uh, Albert Hainsworth hurts me because he should have still stayed a Titan, but he got paid a lot of money to do nothing. 
Um, you know, why did it work for George Allen and it didn't work for the for the Dan Snyder? I said his name, the Dan Snyder Redskins. Just right. Well, well, with all due respect, I, I'm not sure that's that's the greatest analogy right there. I mean, what Dan Snyder did, in particular with those uh, those players that you referred to, Bruce Smith and, and Deion Sanders and Jeff George, and I mean that was that was uh, prior to Snyder's second season of owning the team, and he was like a kid in a candy store regarding okay. free agency. He just thought through free agency. I mean, get any veteran players who had excelled with their previous teams, and and he could, uh, and that would create a Super Bowl team. But that, that's not the case. Allen was was much more astute in terms of knowing what types of players he needed what and how to fill those holes on the team. Um, for instance, when he immediately, when he came to the Redskins, he immediately knew he, he had to fortify that defense and he got some great defensive players. Like I, I mentioned earlier in, in McDowell and uh, Verlin Biggs defensive end for the Jets, uh, Jimmy Jones, another defensive lineman for the Jets, uh, Pardee was one of the Ramskins. Myron Patios was a Ramskin. Both those two were linebackers. Uh, Richie Pettibone, another Ramskin, great player with the Chicago Bears, uh, and and later with the Rams, played under Allen, both the Rams and the Bears. Uh, so he got him. He already had Pat Fisher. Had Pat Fisher at cornerback. He had uh, who was who was a, a really really good safety. Um, and one of the all-time interception leaders for the Redskins. He had Chris Hamburger, a Hall of Famer today, a linebacker Chris Hamburger. So he had some talent on defense, but he needed to, he needed more talent. And Allen knew that. I mean, he was very, very, very intelligent in terms of, of acquiring talent. And actually, dating back to when he was the head talent scout for the Chicago Bears from 1959 through 1965, he had a very keen eye for young talent. I mean, he drafted, he led the drafting of three players who are in the Hall of Fame today, uh, Mike Ditka, Gail Sayers, and Dick Butkus. And in fact, uh, Sayers and Butkus, both part of that 65 draft, they were first ballot Hall of Fame inductees. So, I mean, that's phenomenal in itself. Um, And he also drafted Ronnie Bull, running back Ronnie Bull out of Baylor, who was NFL Rookie of the Year in 1962. He drafted a couple other great players in that 65 draft who opted to play in the AFL, two other guys who were pro bowlers. And um, uh, one guy was a uh, two-time first team all pro. So, I mean, he had a very keen eye for young talent, but when he got to the head coach, uh, to the uh, NFL as a head coach, he had it in his mind. He wanted to win right away, which was the future is now. He felt that he was under a lot of pressure. He, he wanted to win right, right away. And he felt he would do it with defensive players. So that was that, um, that distinction right there. I actually asked Bruce Allen, uh, his son, who was later uh, a ball boy for the Allen coach Rams and the Allen coach Redskins, later an executive in the NFL, including for the, for the Redskins. I asked him, you know, why, why did your father take that approach with veteran players when he became a head coach, when he had this amazingly sharp eye for young talent, when he was the head talent scout for the bears. And it's because uh, Bruce explained he wanted to win right away and he thought he could do it best with, with veteran players. And he showed that in both LA and Washington. I'm glad you brought that up. And and I didn't take any offense to that. In fact, sometimes uh, I learned the best by throwing things out there and people say, let me, let's look at it from a different perspective. Thank you for doing that. Um, so your base, was he the GM de facto GM? He was the complete GM in Washington. Oh, in fact, was he now? 
when he was hired in 1971, he was granted full authority to do anything he wanted with the team. I mean, spending, uh, trades, drafts, uh, coaching. I mean, he, that team was George Allen's team. When he was with the Rams, he was in charge of the active player roster and he could handle trades with the active player roster, but he was not in charge of the draft. Dan Reeves, the Rams owner, yeah. was in charge of the draft. So uh, that was that distinction there. So you're let me let me ask you that because again I, I'm ignorant on the subject and, and help me out with it. <clears throat> if he traded off his draft picks, did that lessen his pre preparation for the draft? Would that have lessened his preparation for the draft? Would that have made it easier for him to be the GM? You think? Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, he, he didn't put that much emphasis on the draft in terms of selecting players. I mean, the highest draft pick that he had with the Redskins was a, a fifth round draft pick who actually ended up being a really good player. Mike Thomas, uh, running back, he drafted oh, yeah. him in 1975. Yeah. He was, he was a rookie of the year, but, um, he traded away draft picks like a deck of cards. And actually I, I theorized in the book that, that is one of the reasons why he was able to get the Redskins to the first round of the playoffs for three seasons after the Super Bowl, but he wasn't able to get that get them past that hump because he didn't have those younger players who had those those uh, younger legs that could go the extra yard in the playoffs. He didn't have that like the Cowboys and Steelers had it from that era. <laughs> now maybe I'm wrong on this one too. Again, I'm I'm okay with being wrong if you can help me out here. Didn't he trade the same pick twice? He did. He absolutely absolutely did. And he got reprimanded for doing that by the uh by the NFL. He got reprimanded and fine. And actually that's one of the things that that really irritated Edward Bennett Williams, who was the Redskins minority owner who brought uh, played a large role in bringing Allen to Washington in 1971. It really irritated Williams and uh you know, here was this man who was uh you know, a great uh criminal uh, trial attorney and uh, very well well respected in uh, legal circles and in DC and, uh, and here, here was Alan doing all these uneth making these unethical moves with uh, using the, you know, trading the same uh, draft picks for, for different players. So, um, so yeah, it, it's one thing that, that bothered Williams. And uh, I think it's one thing that led to the uh, antagonistic relationship that they had, th those two had between each other. Is that how it ended? <laughs> uh, it ended where, Prior to the 1977 season, uh, Allen's last season in Washington, Williams offered him a four-year contract extension, but Allen never signed it. Uh, number one, he was dismayed that that extension didn't include a stock option clause, which would have given Allen the ability, ability to buy 5% of the Redskins. He actually had that opportunity when he first came to the Redskins in 1971. It wasn't part of the contract, it was written in a separate letter from Jack and cook, who was the majority owner of the team at the time. And who was, uh, he was friends with, with Alan and, um, uh, but Alan never exercised that option. And then when 77 rolled around, the Redskins were worth a lot more money because of the television contracts, you know, the, the yeah. teams were getting a much bigger payout because of those contracts. So they were, they were a much more lucrative franchise and Alan wanted to buy into that franchise, but Williams wouldn't give him that opportunity. So um, that's that's one thing that – one reason why he did not sign that contract extension. Another reason is um, he and his wife, Etty, still own their home in Palos Verdes Estates 
a Los Angeles suburb and they wanted to go back to LA. And at the same time, the Rams head coaching job came open and Chuck Knox left to become the head coach of the bills. So that job was open and Allen uh, thought it was a, a great opportunity to go back to LA and, and sure enough, he did. And so and also Williams said at, uh, at one point, it was like the third week into, into January, 1978, he said, uh, you know, I've had it with, with George Allen. He's free to go wherever he wants. Uh, I don't think uh, the Redskins are his, his top interest at this time. If he, if he wants to go elsewhere, fine. So people over the years have called that a firing. I think there's this kind of a gray area there. It's, it's sort of open to interpretation. Allen, he never signed that contract extension. So uh, he walked at that point to, that, to Los Angeles. Do you know off the top of your head his his record there in Washington? I believe it was uh, uh, in the six eighties in terms of uh, winning percentage. Um, he That's was he was pretty up good. Yeah, yeah, he was close to close to seventy uh, percent winning. Uh, all told, in his regular season games. He has a 7-12 Good regular season winning percentage. For, for coaches that have coached at least 100 regular season games, he is third all-time in NFL history in that category. Number one is John Madden. Yeah, that's best. Number two is uh, Vince Lombardi. And then yeah, number that's three up is, there with is them. Yeah, good gracious. That is phenomenal. And, um, I mean, let me also illustrate how this guy was addicted to winning. I mean, in all 12 years of his NFL coaching, five in LA and seven in Washington, he never had a losing season in 14 years total of pro football coaching. When you add in his, his two years coaching in the USFL, yep. he never had a losing season. I mean, this guy was just, um, I mean, winning was in his DNA. So he's, uh, he's actually the only coach in, in NFL history to not suffer a losing season in season in more than 10 years of coaching. That's that's a major part of his legacy. Uh, I was going to ask you about the USFL, uh, but we'll get to that in just a second. When you say seven twelve, that's not counting playoffs. That's not no. He had a very very dismal record in the playoffs, two and seven. But the fact that you make it to nine playoffs or how many playoffs? Seven playoffs. Right, right pretty right. impressive. It's pretty impressive. Um, the over the hill gang. Can I, can I, Jeremy? Can I just add regarding yeah. the playoffs? He his teams, so he made it to the playoffs in seven of twelve of his NFL coaching seasons. He would have been in if he coached today, he'd be in the playoffs every season based on what his record that he was able to to put forth. Because you have seven teams from yeah. each conference going to the playoffs today. Back then, you didn't have that, so he would be in the playoffs every season of of his coaching career today. All right, let's 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 throw this out here again. All right. Maybe again, this is not the best comparison, but I, I want to see what you think. Would his coaching style carry over to today, or would he have to adjust? I think that's a very good question. I think that the NFL changes uh, by a you know what is was it fifteen twenty percent every year in terms of style and how teams have to adjust. So, you know, I, I think he could be effective. I think, first of all, his schemes that he introduced on defense, the nickel and the dime defenses, five defensive backs. He introduced that, yes. That was George Allen. Uh, those schemes are still a part of the fabric of today's yeah. game. So now whether he now he would be hired as a general manager and a coach, I mean, that's up for debate. Uh, I mean, it seems like a mixture in, in today's NFL if, if coaches – 
have that authority to be a GM or there seems to be somebody in the middle in the front office. And, mm. you know, who knows what goes on in, in New England? I mean, does Belichick, there, there's somebody in that front office who actually assists Belichick with the, the personnel decision. So, cause Allen, he wanted that, that authority, that general manager type authority that he had with the Redskins, which was a reason that he was never hired again to coach in the NFL. Well, I remember Bill O'Brien, what he did with the Texans. So it may be good to have somebody to tell the coach, let's let's hold up just a notch. You right, know, right. it might be good. Um, golly, to say that he would have made the playoffs every year with his record. Did he, he – every time I see him, he always had that big smile on his face. Do you have anybody in your book, does it tell about people's reaction to him? Was he pretty much looked at positively or was he just – how did people view him? George Allen was for that era of coaches. He was his, his um, mannerisms on the sidelines were were different than and, and his facial appearance. It, it was different than than some of the, his other coaching peers from that era. I mean, Shula was had had this stone faced look, and so did Chuck Noll. They looked like you know they were uh, you know descendants of, of coal miners or something like that. They were uh, Tom Landry had this stoic look on the sidelines. Allen was this happy go lucky guy, and he would. He would, uh, you know, touch the the bill of his cap, or he would he would flap his arms on the sidelines. Uh, he would uh, uh, lick lick his tongue, or you know, his lips, or, or whatever. But um, I mean, those were his typical mannerisms on the sidelines. He just uh, he didn't have the look of uh, of some of his other great coaching peers from that era. Uh, and he had this rah rah approach in the locker room, which a lot of the players admired. Some. You know, got tired of it, but uh, you know, three cheers for the Redskins, yeah. and yeah. you know, forty men together can't lose. And you know, he he preached that to his players, and you know, this game rests entirely on your shoulders. He would tell his players that they got tired of it after a while. I mean, they they felt it was too much of an emotional drain to be to be carrying uh, throughout the season. But uh, but that was George Allen. His his personality quirks were were a lot different than um, uh, many of the other coaches that were his contemporaries from that era. I, I respect those, that person. I, I can get the idea that it would be draining, but at the same time, uh, I don't know if George Allen would be considered a player coach, but wouldn't you like to have somebody in the highest authority to encourage you and to draw you together? 40 men, that, that statement to me just hits hard because that tells me that he understood the concept of family and that that's awesome. That's well, awesome. he's 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 one of the greatest motivational coaches in NFL history. Uh, NFL Films did a in one of their top ten series. Uh, yeah. It was on the top motivational coaches, and I was actually a part of that in two thousand eight. Uh, so I, you know, of course, that doesn't include coaches in the ensuing uh, what is it fifteen years. But uh, but he's he's number five on that list. I mean, Vince Lombardi is is number one, and uh, you have Marty Schottenheimer in there, and uh, and Allen is number five on that list. I mean, he just, he had a way of, of, uh, of, of igniting that, that passion in his players, the things that he, that he told them such as, Very well. you know, this game rests entirely on your shoulders. Uh, but at the same time, Allen knew he needed the right talent on the field to get the job done. I mean, that, that I think the winning, the, the consistent winning played a large role in that too. It wasn't all, only his motivational tactics that he used with people, the players, but it was the fact that he was a, you know, he, he was such a uh, consistent winner. I mean, that helped too. Well, it, it, winning always helps. I 
I've got about five more minutes, like I told you. And I, Mike, thank you. You, just your stories and, and your and your love for it is is motivation to me. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Yeah, thank um, you very much, Jeremy. And I would love to talk about the USFL. What I what I was told is he was offered basically an ownership of the team or or part ownership of it, or just a he, coach. He was his first season in the USFL in 1983. He was the head coach of the Chicago Blitz. He was also a minority owner of that franchise. Okay. Okay. Right. So I yes. did hear that correctly. Um, and then he, when there was a franchise swap between the Chicago Blitz and the Arizona Wranglers after the 83 season, he moved to Arizona, became the head coach of the Wranglers. And so did most of his players and the ownership moved to Arizona as well. Actually the, the head coach, I mean, the, 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 the majority owner of the uh, Blitz later became the majority owner of the Wranglers. He he was a uh, cardiac surgeon in the Phoenix area. So he wanted to to uh, set up shop with his franchise in Arizona. I mean, uh, that was the most ideal situation for him. So Allen moved with him, and he was still a minority owner with the Arizona Wranglers in 1984. Okay, where can we get your book? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, it's available. Author autographed copies are available through my website, which is uh, Mike richmondjournalist.com mike richmondjournalist.com and Sorry Richmond about that. Spelled... Can, you, can you say that again i just tennessee pollen got me can you say that again sure so author, author autographed copies of the book are available through my website mike richmondjournalist.com and richmond is spelled r-i-c-h-m-a-n that's mike richmondjournalist.com it's also available through Amazon and also uh, the University of Nebraska uh, website. They're selling it too. Um, but uh, if anybody wants a personalized copy, they can just go to my website and uh, and uh, and I will take care of that for them. And my Twitter handle, which I'm posting a lot on, is uh, at MSR underscore journalist. And my Facebook page is uh, Mike Richmond, if anybody would like to uh to read all my Facebook posts, my interviews, and and other postings about uh, about George Allen, those two are uh, top uh, social media sites for me. As is LinkedIn. We will. I will put some on the um, show notes. Mister Mike, thank you. You made my night. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jeremy. I I certainly appreciated this, and uh, it's been a very enjoyable discussion. All right. Thank and again. Thank y'all for listening to the Football's Family Podcast. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast.
Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.